Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founder of the podcast. I'd like to introduce Dr. Andrew Sheehan from San Antonio, Texas. Dr. Sheen is an assistant professor in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the San Antonio Military Medical Center and a familiar voice to our listeners as one of our podcast hosts. Dr. Sheen, welcome back to the podcast as my guest. Yeah, Chris, thanks for having me. It's, it's fun to be back in the hot seat here. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Sheen on one of his own articles in press for the newest journal added to the collection from Arthroscopy and Elsevier, the Open Access Journal, Arthroscopy, Sports Medicine, and Rehabilitation, or ASMAR. Dr. Sheehan was an author on the article titled, Successful Revision Arthroscopic Rotator Cuff Repair is Possible in the Setting of Prior Deep Infection. His co-authors include Rob Hartzler and Stephen Burkhart. Andy, can you start us off with some brief background on this case series and where the idea came from to study this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as a resident down here in San Antonio, I had the great privilege of collaborating with doctors Hartzler and Burkhardt on a number of papers. And this was a project that actually uh, Rob got started when he was a fellow with the, working with Dr. Burkhardt. Um, as you know, um, and as we highlight, there really hasn't been a whole lot in the literature written about the best way to manage infected rotator cuff repairs. Most of what's been written uh, involve uh, case series, retrospective case series uh, pertaining to serial open debridements. Uh, and so given our preference for an arthroscopic approach to most, most things, uh, we wanted to go back and look at Dr. Burkhardt's experience in treating these arthroscopically. Well, congratulations to you and, and your co-authors for this. I, I agree. It's fun to read articles about things that aren't written about often and uh, gives a better opportunity to pick up some pearls the stated purpose of this study was to report on the short-term clinical outcomes of revision arthroscopic rotator cuff repair or reconstruction in the setting of a prior deep infection. Can you tell us how you went about investigating this? Yeah, so this was a, a retrospective review of, of Dr. Burkhart's cases that were performed over a 10-year period. We wanted to make sure that we had the appropriate amount of, of clinical follow-up. Um, it doesn't do anybody good if, if obviously, if we're presenting a, a small case series with no more than, than six months or so of follow-up. And so we wanted to make sure that these patients were followed for a long enough period of time so that our recommendations, we felt comfort, comfortable that our recommendations were going to be based upon um, solid clinical outcomes. And so that's where you see that the, you know, the, the mean follow-up on our patients is, is well over two years, which we thought was important. Um, to adding uh, to the strength of our recommendations. As you previously mentioned, fortunately for us, infection after rotator cuff surgery is uncommon. All three of these patients had their index surgeries performed by a, another surgeon, which may limit your insight, but were you able to identify any of the risk factors or trends that may have contributed to infection in these particular patients? I think this is a great question. One of the patients was diabetic. Um, we know um, what that does to the risk profile after any uh, orthopedic surgical procedure. Um, but I think probably the more, more conspicuous risk factor, um, if we really had to, to drill down to one, would be that two of the three were 
uh, rotator cuff repairs in which the index procedure was done open. Um, and there's and there's some literature uh, to suggest that that open repairs versus arthroscopic repairs have a significantly higher risk of infection. Uh, Hughes et al. and, and OJSM in 2007 demonstrated this, uh, and those authors found uh, approximately 0.4% versus a 2.5% infection rate for arthroscopic versus open repairs, respectively. So, you know, again, it, the the strengths of of our observations are certainly limited by the fact that it's such a small series. But again, I think that that's a, a conspicuous risk factor in this case would be um, two of these three infections happen in the setting of prior index open repairs. Sure. So liter literature is limited on this topic, but most evidence points towards a staged approach for managing deep infections after rotator cuff repair, which is how these patients were managed as well. You noted. Interestingly, all three had an MRI after their debridement in antibiotics prior to cuff repair. You carefully noted that all three MRIs showed no evidence of osteomyelitis. What do you think would have changed in your management if the MRI did show osteomyelitis? Or how do you think this would have affected the eventual outcome of the staged cuff revision for a massive cuff tear? Uh, so that's a great question. Um, you know, the MRI is, is of utility, uh, as you mentioned. To look for the osteomyelitis, you also want to know if you have any sort of um, ring-enhancing lesion that would suggest that there's an associated abscess that would need to be dealt with surgically. Um, but I think that if the MRI shows evidence of, of overt osteomyelitis, you know, we know that osteomyelitis in absence of, of a sequestrum um, is is treated um, you know, medically um, from the start with a, a course of, of, of antibiotics. Um, that would if you had osteomyelitis in the bone, that would also probably dissuade one from uh, proceeding with an immediate uh, single-stage uh, intervention. Um, and so I think that, um, that that's, that's where the utility of MRI comes in to look for that osteomyelitis. So again, if the, if the bone uh, is, is well-appearing uh, on the MRI, there's a low suspicion uh, of low index of suspicion osteomyelitis. Uh, in these cases, um, that was what Dr. Burkhart used to, to proceed with, with uh, at least an initial plan of a, of a single stage uh, revision repair. So one interesting point of debate is anchor retention versus removal at the time of debridement. Your cases had a mixed approach. While in all of your cases, the repair suture material was removed, in case one, the cuff anchors, which was a combination of metal and biocomposite, were left in place. In case two, the biocomposite anchors were reported as being loose and were removed with acute bone grafting. And in case three, the bioabsorbable anchors were left in place. Can you share with us your thoughts on this? Yep. So, so I had a chance to go back and, and talk to Dr. Burkhardt about this. And, and, and basically, his, his intraoperative algorithm is to assess, uh, A, whether or not the, the, the suture anchors are loose or not and B, to assess the quality of the surrounding bone. And in, in, in his estimation, in his, in his view, a uh, evidence of healthy, robust, uh, greater tuberosity bone with um, you know, an, an appropriate bleeding response when, when the footprint is prepared um, is, is indicative of, of, of a circumstance in which that bone is healthy and can be, and can be used. And, um, no sort of uh, 
attempt at excavating an otherwise well-fixed anchor is, is, is necessary. You know, we know the, the, the consequences of, of having to take these uh, implants out from greater tuberosity bone, oftentimes in the setting of, of older folks, it can really, really cause a, a difficult scenario when it comes time to achieving a strong, durable um, uh, fixation on the greater tuberosity. And so uh, in the absence of uh, significant uh, friable tissue or non-bleeding non bone, uh, which I would say would be two indicators of, of a circumstance in which that should give you pause, um, uh, every attempt is made at preserving as much bone stock in the greater tuberosity as possible so you get solid fixation with your revision repair. Um, obviously, loose anchors have to come out. And, and in that circumstance, uh, the surgeon should be ready to deal with um, with those defects in the greater tuberosity. In the, in the second case in particular, um, Dr. Burkhart used a, a technique that he's written about before, where he used a, a osteochondral um, autograph transplant system um, to um, excavate the residual non-viable bone and then to backfill those defects with uh, cancellous autograft. Um, so you get a nice press fit there and creates a circumstance in which you're then able to um, achieve solid fixation with, with new suture anchors. I noticed your post-operative rehab protocol for all three patients was identical with six weeks of absolutely no motion in a sling, followed by passive motion only for another six weeks, and active motion being allowed only at three months post-op. Now, all three patients had massive cuff tears at the time of revision repair. So is this protocol the typical rehab for all massive tears, or was this a modification given the prior infection situation and its potential negative effects on healing. So this is the the recommendation to restrict patients from active strengthening is after rotator cuff repair is something that that Dr. Burkhart has has historically advocated for and, and it's something that that I know that that Rob and I both um, have have integrated in our practice and so with rare exception um, rotator cuff repairs are treated as you mentioned, with a period of immobilization, uh, progressing to passive range of motion, but the active strengthening uh, doesn't start until three months, and in some certain in some circumstances, um, even as much as four months, um, just because the the priority is on um, doing everything you can to create a circumstance in which the enthesis is going to reconstitute. We know that particularly in young patients that healing uh, matters, and it matters a lot. We've written about this um, because young patients have such a profound preference for strength. And we know that healed repairs tend to be uh, uh, ones that, uh, again, are going to manifest clinically as as, the, as strong repairs, or I should say that people have increased strength with healed repairs. So uh, very conservative with respect to when active strengthening is is initiated in general, and certainly in these situations as well. In summary, after working on this project, having a chance to discuss both with Dr. Burkhardt and Dr. Hartzler about their practice, what is your current recommendation for an approach to the patient with deep infection following a rotator cuff repair surgery? Yep. So I'm going to take a step back for a second here. And, and I think that this, this paper also, too, is helpful in that we can think about everything that we can do prior to the index operation to also avoid this circumstance. You know, this is a small series, and Dr. Burkhardt shows us that 
that these can be treated arthroscopically um, with limited debridements, but obviously we want to find ourselves in a circumstance which we're not having to deal with this. And so I think in a lot of, uh, there's been a lot written, especially within the last, I'd say 12 to 18 months, um, about the deleterious effects of uh, corticosteroid injections. Also too, Brian Werner and his group at the University of Virginia has, have published within the last year or so on the importance of, of tight glycemic control and, and what um, hemoglobin A1C can do uh, for us in terms of informing our decision about who and who is not ready for surgery. And so I think it's important, again, even though this paper is about how to deal with the infection, that we take some of the lessons from this series and think about what was done before they came to us and apply those to how we we, we think about these patients. Um, specifically with respect to dealing with the infection, um, again, I think that this series, series nicely shows the importance of advanced imaging again. Uh, I think it shows the importance of involving your infectious disease colleagues early on. All three of these cases, uh, to the credit of the, of the referring surgeons, these, these patients um, were seen uh, and it was, infection was diagnosed expeditiously and they were referred to their infectious disease colleagues and were put on um, broad spectrum uh, antibiotic regimens that I think maximize the likelihood of, of an arthroscopic approach to this infection doing doing the trick and, and getting the infection eradicated. And then thirdly is, again, having a very clear idea in your mind is, is what you're going to do to manage poor or how you're going to assess uh, the bone quality of the greater tuberosity intraoperatively and what you're going to do uh, in, in the setting of, of inadequate uh, greater tuberosity bone and how you're going to fix it, and how you're going to get that repair healed or me, get that repair um, securely fixed and ultimately healed because that's what we we, we know that, that, again, a healed repair uh, leads to clinical strength and optimal surgical outcomes. Thoughtful commentary and great discussion and insight on a topic that's infrequently reported on. Congratulations again to you and your co-authors for this contribution to the body of knowledge on rotator cuff surgery. And thanks for sharing your thoughts with us today, Andy. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Chris. Dr. Sheehan's article titled Successful Revision Arthroscopic Rotator Cuff Repair is Possible in the Setting of Prior Deep Infection is currently in press for Arthroscopy, Sports Medicine, and Rehabilitation, the Open Access Companion Journal to the Arthroscopy Journal, which is available online at www.arthroscopysportsmedicineandrehabilitation.org. Thanks again for joining us, Andy. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.